brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Brandon Taylor, a best-selling author whose novel Real Life was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize and named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. He has been described as one of our most perceptive chroniclers of contemporary life and his latest novel, The Late Americans, is a story of intimacy and precarity, friendship and chosen family set in Iowa City in the American Midwest. Brandon, I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to chat with you today. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for having me. I finished the book last night. I absolutely loved it and I feel like the characters are going to stay with me for such a long time. It's so funny, uh, first of all, which I'll come on to. The way I described it to my my partner, it's like an unflinching look at a group of mainly young, at least to me, because now I'm 44, people negotiating their lives through the prism of art, class, money, desire. And I love the way that with each chapter you kind of focus in. It's like you you kind of move into a story and there'll be minor characters in that chapter who then appear maybe in the next chapter or maybe a few chapters later. So for me, it works as a whole story and it also works as these kind of intersecting different plates, like tectonic plates, Mm. kind of shifting against one another. It feels so alive. Most of them are in education or post-education in Iowa, but a few of the characters are from the town, like Theodore, who works in a meatpacking plant, and Bert, who's a local property owner. And I think that those townies, as it were, add so much texture and that they're kind of crucial as characters from my point of view. I was thinking this morning, what's the moment that really sticks out to me visually? And there's a bit where B, who is a swimming instructor who teaches like old people and kids <laughs> to swim. I just loved this character, maybe because I identified with her the most. I really loved the detail about her home life and the way you painted her loneliness. And there's this moment where she goes outside and watches the deer in the yard at the same time as her neighbour Noah, who by that point we know pretty well in the book. And that's what I loved, where the characters' lives came together, either intentionally or unintentionally. Was that the form the book always took, that you'd have those those kind of different stories layered on top of each other that also interlinked? Yeah, I think right from the very beginning, I was thinking of them as episodes. And I knew that the episodes were these discrete components of a larger story. I tell my friends that I I never write standalone anything. I, I only start working on a project when I have a sense of the 50 or 60 pages that will accompany, you know, that that thing I'm doing. And I'm always thinking in manuscript and in superstructure. And so when the character Seamus, who is the first character we made in the book, when he comes into the book, I knew that that I wanted to write a book that could hang out with him in his poetry seminar, but also a book that could range out into the community. And so, yeah, the characters all kind of, they came together. They came together as a group of people. And I was just very curious about their lives and how they all intersected. And so part of the play of the novel became figuring out how they were all going to be connected and letting myself be surprised by those connections, like with Noah and B. You know, I I don't think I realized how connected those characters' lives were until I got to that line. I was like, oh, yes, Noah is 
her neighbor. She is the person who moves into that apartment where we first encounter Noah, you know, and I'm like, ah, yes, this this makes sense. This makes total sense. It was a discovery for me as much for the reader, and it was a lot of fun. So did one character come to you first, or did they come to you kind of as a group? Or was it a bit more abstract than that, that you just got the sense there was something you wanted to explore about their collective desires? Mm. Seamus was the first character. And I wrote him because I was sitting in seminar and feeling very frustrated with the way that uh, seminar operates and the way that contemporary discourses around art cohere in these very false <laughs> idioms sometimes. And then I wrote that chapter and I showed it to a friend and he was very nice. But at the end of that, he said, when are you going to stop writing about graduate students so much? Like, when are you going to start writing about real people? And I was very offended by that because, one, graduate students are real people and their problems are very real to me. Um <laughs> But also, I, I thought, are you saying that I, I, I have, like, betrayed my my class of origin? <laughs> How dare you? I grew up on a farm. I, I can write, quote-unquote, real people. And so I wrote this character, Theodore, who is a meatpacker and who has as much access to beauty and sensitivity to the world as the poets. And the first line of that chapter was about his horrible boyfriend. And so I immediately knew that Theodore had a terrible boyfriend. And so when I finished writing about Theodore, I became very interested in his terrible boyfriend. And kind of piecemeal, I built my way through the book, letting each character bring with them the set of people who they were naturally entangled with, and then picking who in that tangle was interesting to me, and just letting my curiosity take me. I love that. It's like pulling something out of a, a hole slowly, isn't it? And kind of, does it feel like that is the way it had to be? Like it, it, it couldn't have been any other way. Did you do many rewrites? There were a lot of rewrites, but they weren't to introduce new characters. Once I had this set of characters set, it felt right to me. I knew that these were the people. And then the challenge became how to order which chapters had to come in the right order so that the the book would feel that it was coming to a head and that the sort of bigger structure of the book made sense. And then once I had a sense of the rhythm of the storytelling, then it was going in and, and just making sure that there was a sense of continuity in the background so that the weather makes sense and that time is progressing in each chapter and that the, the sort of global plot of the book is progressed in each chapter because each character really kind of gets one kind of star turn. There are a couple exceptions, but it was just to make sure that the book cohered. And so the rewrites were more about interstitial tissue and also deepening the world of the book more than anything else. But the structure was pretty much always in these episodes. And so the magic was trying to find the right combination of them. I love the way you write about light and about the landscape. And I've never been to Iowa, but I could really picture... You write about the shapes of light quite a lot, which I really loved, and nature and the geese make an appearance twice. That was a bit like a dear moment for me. The geese bring the same feeling to two characters, kind of. I guess mm. there are nuances there, but when they see the geese, it's like they've been touched by something a little bit divine and it's kind of, okay, I feel seen, mm. I guess. So the geese felt like a character to me in a sense, like part, <laughs> part of the world that you'd embroidered around the main oh, characters. I'm so glad. And, you know, that seems like a writerly device, but really living in Iowa City, that happens. I remember walking around Iowa City feeling really quite low one day and talking to a friend on the phone about something that was really quite difficult. 
And suddenly I, I hear like wings flapping and I look overhead and there's just like a geese flying quite low over me in formation. And I thought, oh, this is, I mean, it wasn't like a sign, but it felt like, oh, the world is so much bigger and there is nature all around us. And, you know, sometimes you're walking around downtown Iowa City and you look up and you see eagles, like bald eagles, just like hanging out way up <laughs> in the sky. Or or sometimes they come and they, they, they sort of stand on the ice when the river freezes. And it is just like a place that is just filled with nature. And I, I mean, I grew up on a farm in Alabama and nature was always around me. And I think whenever I'm writing, I'm always trying to remember nature. I feel that contemporary novels these days, maybe because they take place predominantly in urban spaces, they forget nature or writers are afraid to write about nature or the environment because they think it's going to be a symbol. And I mean, I, <laughs> I'm i just, I don't know, I, I could never do that because nature is such a crucial part of the way that I experience and move through the world. Yeah, and also the bit where um, Fatima gives the, the stray cats some mm. fat from the ham, like, that's really quite a small moment in a sense. Like, she doesn't write for a really long time about the cats or... But it feels exactly right because it's a moment for her to... Uh, to connect with nature. I mean, that's what's happening. The fact that these cats are strays and that they probably don't look great doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be something that's beautiful. It can just be a moment where I guess you realise that you're an animal too. Mm. Yeah, I think of those moments also like these moments of great tenderness, right? Like in a book that is, <laughs> I think the book is very tender, but it has its not so tender moments. And so sometimes it's nice just to let a character reveal something about themselves and for many of the characters in the book being vulnerable is quite difficult for them yeah. but the one place where they can be vulnerable is when they're just being nice to an animal you know I think for many people when they spend time with animals it's like the one time maybe in their whole day where they get to be vulnerable and get to express something of tenderness and so yeah it was nice to give it felt like I was allowing the characters to express something about themselves that you know, they might have otherwise found quite difficult. Yeah, and for the reader, that's great because you feel like you're seeing that moment secretly. Mm -hmm. You're kind of the only other person there. Yeah, and as a reader, I love those moments. You know, there are some characters who never feel alone. Like, even when they're in a lone moment, the writer is, like, so self-conscious. And, and I like when a character is totally unaware that they're being observed and they're, there's just a moment of unobserved grace I don't know. I, I feel like that's the thing I'm always after. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, so I saw it very visually as well, I think. I felt like I kind of got to swoop in mm. and see almost like with an advent calendar, you'd open a window and go into that person's window for a while and then move back out. And I loved that about it. And I think I, I could picture it all so well as well. When you're writing, do you... Do you kind of plan out the street or do you have like in your head an idea of um, not necessarily what the characters look like, I guess, but like their environment and, mm. and their smell and what they love to eat and, and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I care very much about the material reality of the story world and the characters. All that stuff matters a great deal to me. A person who wears a green flannel under a chore coat is a quite different person who wears like a wool pea coat. Like those are different people. A person who wears like Timbaland boots is quite different from somebody who's going to wear like Birkenstocks in the winter time. Like those are very different people. And so I, I think 
we have come to believe culturally that objects no longer have the capacity to signify in our lives, which is, I think, like a deeply silly notion, but people feel that way. And so there isn't a lot of attention paid to the material reality of characters these days. And I feel the opposite, that we live in a time that is basically governed by the power of objects and ideas to signify <laughs> and to tell us things about people, and that all of it is available for us to make meaning from if we pay close enough attention. And so I, I, I do, I do care a lot about what they're wearing and where they're going. And some of those details come out of the story, but some of them stay. Um, like, I think it matters that B, uh, B is carving fingers from MDF, because the person who carves fingers from MDF is a very different person who's carving fingers from walnut wood. Um, like, those are just very different activities. Yeah, or carving toes from MDF. Yes, I, yeah. yes, like, it's a very, it, and that seems like a silly thing, but I think it matters quite a lot. And I think of character as the accretion of these choices that the writer makes in the material reality of the story world. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And really, my I think, I think of my job as being about selection and deciding what matters most. Like, what is the most telling detail? What's the detail that's going to compress the most meaning and significance into the smallest amount of space? And how many of those details do I need to create a character? And once I've outlined a character, how can I then deepen them with contradiction or subversion or surprise? What are ways that I can reveal the character to the reader through their action or their dialogue? To me, that's one of the great pleasures of storytelling and writing is character and the ways that you reveal and subvert and, and conceal from readers. So I, yeah, I, I nerd out on that stuff. I love it. Well, I love it. I, I love in this book how sometimes they're unreliable narrators <laughs> in the sense that they'll say, one. well, a lot of them are grappling with, I guess, in a very concrete sense, what they want to do next, how they feel about money, whether they're from money or not, how that relates to who they are and what they think they are. What I really loved about it was when they say one thing and do another, <laughs> or when they do one thing and say another, or when, because a lot of it is about desire, both sexual desire and I guess desire to be seen or validated, yet a lot of them would say, I don't care about that. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I just loved that and I could just relate to it so much. <laughs> brilliant but it's it's so hard to do like you to hold that world together it's such a skill I think each of them I, I felt like I knew them all I'm going to come on to the hypocrisy thing in a minute because it reminded me of something at, um, when I was at drama school um, <laughs> but just to talk about the language so there were lines and analogies that I had to read and read and read to really like I got it the first time and it's it's so poetic some of it you know I didn't want to rush any of it so I wanted to go back and read and read and really let it sink in and there's one bit where you talk about the party's coming to an end I think the party's at Noah's house maybe about halfway through or maybe slightly earlier than that and you talk about a group of people leaving the party and they're trailing behind them like a comet trail of the time they've mm. had the comet trail is what stayed with me and it is so beautiful and again I think that's what I mean about me picturing a lot of these analogies it's so visual but also it says so much it's got so much bite to it it's just brilliant while you're writing and say working on something specific like this do your reading habits change do you find that you want to read stuff that isn't like the stuff you're writing or is, is there no difference really I think it depends on the project with this book when I was drafting it I was in very much in a phase of like I don't want to read any contemporary fiction. I simply cannot while I'm trying to write in 
these characters' voices just because I'm very porous. And it's not out of, like, I want to preserve the pristineness of my art. And, and, like, it is not out of that. I am so porous that if I read anything, I will absorb that writer's aura. And it will make its way into my own work. And I don't want to be giving anybody, like, a bad version of, <laughs> of themselves. Nobody needs that. I didn't want to read a lot of contemporary fiction while I was working on the book, so I mostly read the classics. I was reading a lot of Henry James. I mean, I'm always reading a lot of Henry James, but I was reading a lot of Henry James and a lot of Edith Wharton. And I think I was actually reading a ton of Alice Munro short stories while I was writing this book, which is contemporary, but it doesn't feel... Because one, I'm so influenced by Alice Munro anyway that like <laughs> a little bit of extra influence is not going <laughs> to do a great deal of damage. And so, yeah, when I'm working, when I worked was working on this book, I I didn't read a lot of contemporary stuff, uh, just because I I I knew that I would do a bad version of somebody else if I did. But is it important for you to keep on reading? Like, can you imagine working on something of this scale and not reading at all while you were writing? Mm, whenever I feel stuck as a writer, I realize it's because I haven't been reading. It's that thing where you feel gross and mad and then you like drink some water and have some food and you're like, oh, um, I needed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like that with me and reading as well. Whenever I'm stuck or the writing isn't going well, I'm like, why is the writing not coming? And then I, I go, oh, I need to read something. And then that's when going to contemporary fiction is really great because I pick up a novel by Katie Kitamura or I pick up um, a great short story by Ben Lerner or Aishkul Savash or just like a, a really great piece of contemporary art to remind myself of like, oh, language. Yes, of course. Or, you know, I, a great book that I turn to when I'm stuck on language is I, <laughs> I reread The Age of Innocence. <laughs> Just because Edith Wharton is so good at everything and and rereading maybe the first two chapters of The Age of Innocence will just unstick me every time. But yeah, whenever I'm stuck, just read a book. And I tell that to my students all the time. I'm like, if you are struggling, it's because you are not reading and you need to go read three books and you will be fine. It's such an easy thing to 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 forget, isn't it? Because you think, well, I'm writing, so but it's like it's only then going one way and it needs to go in and out I guess. I also find that even when I'm not trying to write when I'm reading and when I read like a book that I that I really enjoyed I'll get to the end of it and be like man that was so wonderful and then just naturally I will find myself gravitating back to the page Mm -hmm. you know I I had that experience a couple weeks ago when I read Emma Klein's new novel The Guest I got through that book Loved it. It was so harrowing and stressful. (laughs) I loved every minute of it. I put it down and then I I went back to a novel that I had been stuck on for months and was just right back in it and realized, oh, the reason I was stuck was because I hadn't hadn't been reading. Oh, and (laughs) it always makes me feel better. Shocking, I know, that reading (laughs) (laughs) makes me feel good. Um, I love the character of Seamus. I don't know if I love him the best. I, I love B the best, mm-hmm. I think. But I love Seamus because he, like, he's so antagonistic. In a way, when we see it at the beginning, I just think, oh, he's really antagonistic because he's in this poetry class and he's kind of just, in a way, the only one standing against this wall of opinion mm. about poetry. And there's a lot of discussion about poetry. I found that scene so funny. <laughs> and I found, you know, I, there was so, I was laughing out loud throughout this book. But yeah, that scene, and it, I, as I said, it reminded me of drama school, I guess because I hadn't studied poetry, but at drama school, 
what looking back happened was you brought a group of people together who'd always had this passion that they wanted to do theatre, but they were actually all very different from each other and from different backgrounds, class-wise, ethnicity-wise and geographically. Then put them all together, and then we were all surprised when we when we had big arguments and when we had these sort of <laughs> passionate debates about stuff. And I remember it getting to this point in the third year where this girl kind of lost her mind and she screamed, "The verb is to play," because we were talking about <laughs> to play, and it reminded, it really brought it back to. Me. I was like, "Oh yeah, the verb is to play." Do, do you like have fun writing those <laughs> scenes where it's like a symphony of opinion and all all kind of stepping on each other? Yeah, I, <laughs> that is such an incredible story. <laughs> um, I, okay, I have so many questions. But yeah, I love writing scenes like that. And, you know, I had an event here in the UK last night and they were asking me about why I love writing party scenes. And this reminds me of that in that I think at core I am someone who is really excited by tension and conflict and drama and anytime you can get characters into a room where there is a sort of predetermined or overriding situation or context, like a workshop or a party or like a courtroom case, and you can just like let all their interpersonal stuff just like play out either in the background or the foreground while the other thing is happening at the same time, it's, oh, it's just so exquisite. It's so juicy. I love it so much. And so... Yeah, I, I had a great time writing that workshop. And yeah, part of why I wanted to write and started writing the book is because I wanted to take on some of the hypocrisies, both the ones enacted and not quite enacted in full uh, awareness of them being hypocrisies, to take that on and to sort of ask, what does it do to art? And what does it do to artists? And what does it do to all of us as we're kind of sitting in these rooms and saying all these scripts that we've been given about what is good and what is bad and what is moral and what is not and what makes a poem a good poem by society's standards and is that the same thing as it being like a true poem or a real poem? And also, you know, I, what I love about Workshop is that it dramatizes people having very different like regimes of value in their art and it forces them to fight it out. I, I do kind of love that that is the ostensible function of a workshop. Yeah, it's so true. Yes. It, and also because they bring in, well, not all of them, but because some of them bring in really personal stuff, it then becomes about that as well because they feel like they're being attacked as well as their work. And then that, of course, leads to even more juicy drama. Oh, yeah. I, yes. It does make it really rich and very interesting. You know, I studied fiction. I didn't study poetry. But a thing that would happen in fiction is that someone would bring in a piece of autofiction or they would bring in a piece of um, like deeply, thinly disguised memoir and they would bring it into fiction. And the teachers, the fiction teachers had no training in how to discuss memoir or personal essay writing. Their training was in fiction. And they would try to approach these pieces of prose writing with a clinician's eye, because that was the, the default pedagogical framework at the Higher Writers Workshop at the time, like very dispassionately and objectively and being, yes, we need to discuss this and take it apart as a, as a matter of technique and form rather than the deeply personal stuff. And that is a valid approach to some forms of prose writing. But when one approaches memoir, it's very different. You know, that's a whole other set of tools and <laughs> strategies. Yeah. And so it just made things very complicated because we, the students, were sitting there thinking, mm, well, this is obviously about this person. So what do I say? And the teachers would be wondering, 
why are they being so backed off? Why are they being so treating this with such kid gloves and maybe <laughs> inciting us to be more brutal? So it just made it, it made it quite complicated. But I, I felt like, you know, I couldn't write a book about a fiction workshop because I was still in school there. And so I made it about poets. And then when I brought it into my fiction workshop, <laughs> the teacher was like, you know, I'm afraid to say anything because you have so parodied a, a writing instructor and you've so taken apart the platitudes that I would normally use. <laughs> and it, it, it got quite meta when I was workshopping that chapter in class. <laughs> well, you know, everyone has to have a mirror held up to them, I guess. It was, I mean, it was a very, I mean, I thought, you know, I thought I knew what to expect bringing that in and it, it got strange in ways that I did not expect. <laughs> It is very meta, isn't it? Because you're taking it back, yeah, to the place. It got real strange and it was so funny. Um, well, let's move on to your objects. The first one that you brought in is something to capture a moment with. Oh, yes. Yeah. The Leica. Uh-huh. My Leica M6. When I was writing this novel, I, I found it really difficult, actually, in the revision. And so I quit writing in 2021. Yeah, I heard this. So you quit for 10 months. Is that right? Yeah. And so you just took photos. I only took photos. I didn't write a word. And I think I wrote essays, but I didn't write any fiction. And I, I took up photography and taught myself how to shoot film and only film. I, From the very beginning, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to shoot film photography because I don't know how to do it. And it's something that's always interested me. And I'm going to just like teach myself this new medium just to have a way of expressing myself since I am not a writer anymore. <laughs> and yeah, I took up photography and, and it's been a really wonderful journey, actually. Um, it's been really delightful. And some of my photos have been used as um, the promotional materials for this book here and in the US. And, and so it had felt sort of full circle that it would become a part of it. And you know, it started as kind of a desperate last ditch effort to <laughs> to express myself. And it's really become another way of seeing and engaging the world. And I, I like it because it slows me down. And I take pictures and take pictures and get them developed. And sometimes weeks go by before I get them developed. And I don't know. And then I get them developed and I get them scanned. And I look at them and I think, okay, that's fine. And then months and months will go by and I will open up the folders and see all these images, and I'll see them again, and they look different to me, and nothing in the image has changed, but somehow I've changed. And it's similar sometimes to to prose, where I write the prose and I come back to it, and I'm like, oh, this was not as bad as I as I thought. And, and I don't know, it's, it's just, um, I feel like it has deepened my conversation with the world. Did you have a moment where you knew you'd go back to the book then? <laughs> I, I... I did, actually. I was having a conversation with a friend in a hotel room and he was asking me about the book. And all I could think was, I can't tell this person about this book that I'm probably never going <laughs> to fix. <laughs> and he was very, very insistent that I tell him about it. And so I told him a little bit about it and I told him about the character and the issue I was having with Seamus. And he asked me, because um, I was like, yeah, I just feel like nobody's going to want to read about this character I feel like, you know, I, I don't know why people are going to care about him. My friend is like, well, does he care about himself? Does anybody care about him? Like, and, and why? Why is he so desperate to to keep people at arm's length? And it really, I don't know, it, it sort of recast that character for me. And it provided an avenue back into Seamus and his life and his concerns. And I realized that I needed to to restage some of his conflicts outside of the seminar room and to move them out into the world. And I was like, oh, 
that seems so obvious now. And so, yeah, that moment, that moment was the moment I knew I'd go back to the book. There's a few moments where a character will look into a window of mm. a stranger's house. They really stay with me because that's something I really like doing in the dark. And I've never been able to resist looking in ever since I was a kid. And they come at really key moments. So Seamus, quite near the beginning, he's had quite an intense sexual encounter with Bert, who I guess we don't know is Bert at that point. And then he's experienced violence from him almost immediately afterwards. And um, he passes these houses on his bike and he describes it as these illuminated windows of other lives. And then Theodore, after he's gotten drunk at this art exhibition, he he's in the car and he's drunk. And by the way, the way that you wrote about him being drunk was just brilliant. And I don't know how you did it, because I think that's actually really hard to do. But his logic seemed completely sound. And then you were like, that's how you think when you're drunk. <laughs> but he's being driven home and he looks out of the window and he, he, he sees it in rectangles of orange gold light and he says people in their tanks like animals. I really love those two moments. What I want to know is, do you look in the window? if you're going past a house. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I find it really, sometimes it's so beautiful, especially if you're like walking home at night and you look up and they're framed so beautifully. You know, you, there's like a beautiful yellow window and you look up and there's like a person just doing something. And it reminds me of Hopper paintings. Those are some of my oh, favorite yeah. Edward Hopper paintings. His paintings of other lives glimpsed through windows. I feel like that's his whole thing is... The, the sort of momentary glance of like someone else's uh, ephemeral life. It's just like really one of my favorite things. Um, and so, yeah, I find myself, I'm not, I mean, I don't stop and stare, yeah. but I, <laughs> um, but I, I do sometimes when I look up and I'm like, oh, there's a person up there. How nice. And actually having to glance fleetingly adds to the potency of the moment, I think, because if you were allowed to stop and look for even 10 seconds, somehow it would be too much. But the fact that you're only allowed to do it as you're going past mm. so it doesn't look weird, it makes you grab all you can in yeah. that second or two. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it also, those are two different activities. Like a person who's like staring into a window, <laughs> that's yeah. a very different <laughs> activity than the sort of like passive, almost reflexive glance. And you're like, oh, what? What was that? Yeah. What was that? And it, I don't know, it forces it to stay with you. It's like a haunting almost. Um, yes. You know, I, I yeah. love that, the, the, the sort of momentary glance into another life. Yeah, me too. We get such contrasting views on art in the book, especially on, on music and, yeah, art generally, on poetry, of course, on dance, on music. I assume that some of those positions you share and some of them that you don't. Did you enjoy writing the characters or the moments where you were like, I do not think this? <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like that was one of the, um, the big steps forward in this book. I think with my last couple of books, it was like one consciousness or a couple consciousnesses over very constrained periods of time. But what the characters thought about most was themselves. And there wasn't a lot of discursive terrain in those novels simply because they did not know how to do it. And with this book, I feel like I, I I figured out how I could do it in my own way, in my own style. And and so suddenly the characters, of course, think about themselves, but they also argue about music and art and what art is and is not and how they feel about it. And getting to craft each character's individual point of view was so much fun. It was so, I love writing arguments and I love watching a character come to a realization about their own stance on art. I mean, it's just... Yeah, and sometimes it's a really inconvenient realisation, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
And <laughs> um, well, let's move on to your next object. This is something to hold your writing tools. Oh yes, I've become a person who carries around pen cases. I got into fountain pens over the pandemic. I, I feel like over the pandemic, I developed quite a lot of analog hobbies. So I took up film photography, and one of the other things was like started writing with fountain pens and I really love it and I got to a certain point where I could no longer just like keep them in the loose pocket of my backpack um <laughs> which is a habit I had from school is just like just toss all the pencils into that one packet and it's just gross and horrible in there and I was shopping in a stationery store in New York called Goods for the Study and I saw that they had like a just like a cloth little bag and I thought oh I can have a pen case and it's become one of my go-tos I keep it in my bag everywhere I go. I have a bag of like three fountain pens, an eraser, a pencil, and um, it it helps me feel grounded. And I don't know, I just feel like I like having my writer's toolkit. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a concrete thing that you can. It is. It's your toolkit. Like a surgeon has their all their equipment. Oh yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I grew up <laughs> with very mechanically minded relatives on the farm, and so my grandpa had a little tool bag as well, and so I, I, it reminds me of him and his tool bag, though it is not as as heavy yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yet you'll keep you'll get given fountain pens as gifts now. Um, yes, you'll just you'll have to buy a really big bag <laughs> to carry them around. It. Um, there's a bit I can really relate to where Seamus is trying to write the poem and it just mm. won't come, and it's. Everything that he does to try and get that poem finished, at times it's heartbreaking, it's funny. It's And I, I really, really saw him in every moment where he was struggling to get to the point of kind of like almost breaking through this invisible wall. But he says that even the not writing is part of the writing in that bit. Um, is that something that you believe too? Yeah, I think that's one of the few areas where Seamus and I converge in a really <laughs> deep way. You know, that took a lot of learning, actually. It took a lot of maturation for me. Um, when I finished my first novel, Real Life, I finished that book before I went to the Ira Writers Workshop. And I finished that book in April of 2017. And I didn't write again until February of 2018. And that whole first semester <laughs> in grad school, I did not write a word and I felt like I had used up all the stuff in my life to write that yeah. book. And I'm like, what am I going to write next? Do I have any interests? What idea? I don't have any ideas. And, you know, very wise friends of mine who are also writers were just like, Brandon, it's a fallow period. Let the field be quiet. Let it mature. You... You used your whole life to write your first book, and now you are writing your next. And so just let it be what it will be. And the not writing is also writing, because the not writing is where you're taking in all this stuff, and you're, you know, like you're absorbing the world and making it into art. And so the not writing is also the writing. And and yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel, I felt that very deeply uh, with Seamus. Although I think he and I have slightly different feelings about <laughs> the not writing also being a part of the writing. I guess the photography is what, so that was a moment where you, you couldn't continue with the book at that point, mm. but instead of panicking, you went forward into the photography and you, you moved through, if you want to look at it that way, mm. that not writing period by being creative in a completely different way, which still continues to serve you. Yeah, and, and I, it felt crucial that I could decouple my sense of identity as an artist from writing, that I could yeah. survive not writing because my whole life I thought, well, if I can't write, I am just going to die in a ditch. I am, I can't make sense of it. 
And it felt helpful to have this other avenue that I could just like, I don't know, it let me rediscover the play of art making. And because I had no ego tied up in taking pictures, I was like, I am learning how to take pictures. And yeah, it, it did help me sort of get through that. But the first time it happened in, in grad school, I thought, what is happening? I mean, it truly did feel like a death. And then I had to learn that this is a part of the process. And it's something I've had to learn about myself that every time I finish a book, there are like three or four months where I'm just not going to write anything. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's move on to your next object. This is something to read. When my first book was uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, my team at Daunt Books got me this like really beautiful set of Jane Austen books and they're in this like beautiful little like fold case and it just they're these cute little volumes with these wonderful green painted pages and yeah and it just made me feel so loved and 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 appreciated and it was I don't know it was just like so beautiful and yeah and they got me Jane Austen because Jane Austen is one of my very very favorite writers maybe my favorite writer and her work is so crucial to me and she she forms so much of the the bedrock of who I am as an artist. And whenever I'm sad or lonely or happy or whatever, I, I just, I go to Jane Austen and I read Sense and Sensibility or I read Persuasion or I read Pride and Prejudice or even Mansfield Park. I feel like I've become a bit of a Mansfield Park apologist. <laughs> and yeah, she's always there for me. And, and yeah, that's one of my most prized possessions. I'm interested to know whether you think when an artist releases a work of art, whether it still belongs to them or whether they kind of let it go. And I suppose like continuing from that, whether you can like the art of despicable people. <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer to that question is yes, I can. I <laughs> I like the art of many despicable people. And what usually happens when we find out that they're despicable, it means I just like stop talking about them publicly. <laughs> And just like quietly consume the art. (laughs) But I do think that what I think is my interpretation of my book is my interpretation of it. But when a book enters another person's life, that's their book. That's their experience of it. And I think readers are entitled to their experience of it and their interpretations. And one of the things about art is that not only can it survive it, but it must have a multiplicity of readings. You know, if it's a truly great work of art, it has many, many different readings and interpretations in it. That's why you can read Persuasion five times and come up with five different <laughs> interpretations of what's going on in that book. And and I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's one of the things that keeps art fresh. And so, yeah, I try not to interfere <laughs> between the reader and, and the book. Once it's theirs, it's theirs. And of course, I have my own feeling about it and and that's mine and and once I send it into the world it no longer belongs entirely to me okay well this is your final object this is something to set yeah so I (laughs) early in the pandemic I like many people really struggled with my attention span because I was just so anxious all the time I was diagnosed with a panic disorder right at the start of the pandemic and I just found it really hard to focus and when I couldn't focus I couldn't read I couldn't write And so I decided to go back to basics and I got a digital timer and I, I set it for 15 minutes. And when I can do 15 minutes of work, I then set it to 30 minutes. And when I can do 30 minutes of work, I set it to an hour. And, 
it was just a marvel. I still use it. And whenever I need to get work done, I, I break out the timer and I do, okay, one hour of work. And at the end of that, I reset it. I'm like another hour of work. And it really helps me just like stay focused and to stay in grooves. And it gives the time a shape. And it's just like totally indispensable for my writing and also my reading. You know, when I tell myself I'm going to read for one hour without looking at my phone, when I have the timer there, I can do it. I can I can read for one hour without my phone. And it was important that it was a timer that was not my cell phone. Yeah, I was going to say that. There's something lovely about it being a different object. Oh, yeah. I, because whenever it was my phone, I'd be like, oh, I'm checking the time. I'm like, well, I'm just going to... Um, and so, yeah, I put my phone in the other room and I get out the timer that is not my phone and I, yeah, I run it. And it helps. <laughs> Shockingly, it helps. There's a bit of the book that stayed with me and it's when you talk about Timo watching the porn clips that Ivo mm. has uploaded to the internet and it's the sieve analogy. So he watches them repeatedly and the sadness that he feels becomes more complicated. And you talk about um, his emotion being passed through a sieve over and over again and as it becomes more refined, more of its distinct character emerges this is another of the metaphors that I really loved, a bit like the comet one that I really sat with for a little bit. And I wondered if you thought, because the way that you describe these porn clips, they're really artistic, like a lot of it's in shadow and they are porn, but it's got a lot of emotion to it, whether it's kind of hatred or, I guess, desire or everything in between. Do you think that sometimes people don't allow that space when they're watching something or reading something, that they go in with a preconception, they go, this is what it is, this is what I'm going to feel. Whereas there's something really nice about repeated viewing because the sieve, the sieve then can sit and you can surprise yourself when you watch mm. or read something for the third or fourth time. Yeah, I, it's crucial. I have friends who don't reread or rewatch anything and I just think, whoa, that's that's wild um, because it's such a crucial part of my engagement with anything. I love a rewatch. I love to reread things. I I never, ever get bored rereading a book, especially if it's a book that I love. Right now I'm reading The Age of Innocence for like the 10th time, something like that. And I'm noticing new things still. Ten times I read this book. And I'm still noticing little things, little little flourishes of brilliance that Wharton has. And I do think that there's something about when you pass it through, you become acquainted with what Lionel Trilling in an essay called A Sense of the Past, he calls the hum and buzz of implication, meaning that when we read something from a different time, there are things that we don't have access to because we don't know all the things that that person has left out and everything we encounter feels so charged and historical and we don't have access to it. When you read something many, many times or you view it many, many times, you pick up on that and you gain access to this whole sense of the pastness of the text and you enter into it and you're allowed to access more and more and more of it. And I think it's crucial. I think it's, it's what makes art art. I think it's so it's, yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't and they're cheating themselves. Yeah. Because your response deepens in the noticing of these flourishes or these nuances mm -hmm. you hadn't before. Yeah. I guess it sinks further in, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it, you appreciate it more. Yeah. You appreciate what's going on more. 
Thank you so much, Brandon. I feel like this could have been double the length. You've spoken so brilliantly and your book is absolutely wonderful. It's been lovely to speak to you today. Thank you for listening wherever you are. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review because it helps get the word out and helps other people to find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time.